Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hey friend, before we get into today's episode, I just want to give you a quick, quick reminder on how you can support this podcast, Infertility and Me. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a five-star rating and review in Apple iTunes. And you can also do it now in Spotify and leave five stars for your favorite Infertility, Fertility podcast. Now, we can get into the episode. Welcome to Infertility and Me podcast, a show that amplifies diverse stories about the struggles of infertility and fertility in a safe space. Our goal is to normalize fertility stories that validate, give hope, and create a community where no one is left silently suffering. Hey, you guys, welcome back to another episode of Infertility and Me podcast. If this is your first time, my name is Monique Farouk. Thank you and welcome and thank you for hitting that play button on today's episode, whether you're on YouTube or your favorite audio streaming platform. I do not take it for granted that you have chosen to be here today to listen to stories of infertility, fertility struggles and or loss. Today's guest is Ms. Norelle Hudson. She is a counselor as well as a naturopathic specialist and she has a practice in Brisbane, Australia, which she began after her own story through loss and infertility. And you can find Norelle on Instagram at Norelle, N-A-R-E-L-L-E dot Hudson, H-U-D, S-O-N. And she can also connect with her through her website if you're in the area of specifically Brisbane, I should say, and you would like to seek her services. You can connect with her on Instagram first and go to her website and learn more about her and her practice. For those of us who have recently suffered losses, I will ask that you come back to this episode if, if you don't have the strength or are not up to being able to hear a story of loss and it's just too emotional too unbearable at the moment do come back save this episode though before you go and then come back and watch it at a later time when you're feeling a little better because this story does involve great great loss and that of premature 
birth at 23 weeks gestation. We'll be back in just a moment, you guys, with Noelle. So we're back, you guys, with our friend Norelle Hudson. Norelle, thank you so much again, dear, for coming onto the show and offering your story of loss and male factor infertility. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for having me. Norelle, can you start by telling us how you met hubby? How did that all transpire? Yeah, um, it was very romantic, actually. Um, we taught at the same school together. Um, I was a first year out of uni teacher and Brett taught at the same school. And we, we were both single and my lovely little year three girls in the class that I taught used to say to me on the playground, oh, you're too pretty to not have a boyfriend, Miss Barnard. I wonder who we could set you up with. Who else is Aww. single? And they'd say, oh, Mr. <laughs> Hudson is single. And yeah, obviously it wasn't them setting <laughs> course, us up. But yeah, down the track, it did end up oh, that way. I love that. It's <laughs> so cute. And so were you, did you always feel like you wanted to be a mom? Was that something that you foresaw like after you became an adult and just started thinking about the long term of things? Was that something you always wanted? Yes, definitely. Even before I was an adult, I think I was raised by a mother who was very pro-grandchildren and having babies. And, you know, when I was 12, she was already getting ladies to hand crochet baby clothes for my future. So it was always <laughs> on the cards and always something that I just assumed would happen even from the age of like 10 or 12 yeah mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so how long were you guys married before you started talking about trying to conceive well it was a very different story in that respect when I met Brett he um, had just come out of a marriage and had three children of his own and that was a conversation very early on in our relationship because for me it was a bit of a deal breaker with my future husband if he didn't want children because that's how I always saw that my life would be and so we had those conversations pretty early on before we even talked about marriage you know talking about was he open to having more children even though he already had children and um, if he wasn't then you know that would be a big decision whether we continue the relationship and then even before we got married once Brett had said that, yes, he was open to having a child with me, we were going down other medical routes because he had already had a vasectomy. So we were already planning that and had an operation to try and reverse the vasectomy before we were even married. So I was in my 20s, probably about 27-ish. The operation was done to reverse the uh, vasectomy and we hired the best person we could who was the best in our city at the time and everything went okay and then um, a couple of days later it just healed itself and shut so the operation didn't work so then mm. there was no point trying to conceive yeah. naturally because it wouldn't have happened so yeah. um, we started having the conversation about infertility treatment and um, IVF, which was a huge conversation and a huge grief yeah. already. Like we were yeah. planning a wedding at the time. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Devastating. It's overwhelming. So how did you feel moving into having to go to a reproductive endocrinologist? Is that something that you, I guess, came to terms with? 
at some point? Um, there was lots of grief there. Like it, a really, really difficult time mm. trying to wrap my brain around the fact that I wasn't going to have children naturally. That was a huge loss for me. Yeah. And just knowing that we had to go and do all of these medical things to have a chance of having children was just so far out of what I thought my life would look like. Such a natural mm -hmm. person, like mm -hmm. I'm a vegan, I don't, you know, use products with chemicals. Like it was just so foreign to me to think that the only way I was going to conceive was with all these fertility drugs and operations and medical people. At this point, were you still teaching? Yes. Yes, I was still teaching up until when we got married. And because mm -hmm. of the waiting list for IVF and everything, we'd had our first appointment before we got married. And then we were due to start the IVF process and all booked in for when we got back from our honeymoon. And gotcha. yeah, then about six months into the IVF treatment starting, I ended up leaving teaching because it was just so emotionally difficult for me to try and be in that space mm -hmm. and teach mm -hmm. other other people's precious little babies when that wasn't a reality yeah. for me. Yeah, yeah. That's why I ask, because I, I imagine it's very difficult for people in spaces with young children, nurses, teachers, all of you guys in those spaces. The emotional toll it can take, you know, having to care for other children when your journey yourself was so very difficult and um, you were dealing with so much grief and, and pain. You said that you had to wait, you were on a waiting list and then you had your first appointment before you got married after you guys came back. So walk us through what happened after you guys came back and you had decided to resign as a teacher and what happened during that period. So we decided to move out to a small country town and start the IVF process which was still back in the city. Mm -hmm. So um, the small country town wasn't equipped to do the daily blood tests and everything that you have to do during the IVF process. So I it would have been really difficult to hold down a full-time job anyway because yeah. I was having to travel 50 minutes into the city every morning just to have my blood test. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I was in the process of, you know, starting my own business and everything. But, yeah, it was a difficult time financially yeah. as well, not having that income coming in and all the costs of the fertility treatment. So there was so much going on, so many different elements, <laughs> a new marriage, financial problems. That yeah. mom bonus <laughs> mom going on. Um, were the children very young at this time? Were they elementary age or older? Yes, at that age, they were still in prime. Yeah, 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 yeah. So did you have any diagnosis at all for female factors? Yes, my um, IVF specialist had actually said to me in the first appointment, you're young, you're thin, mm -hmm. and you're fertile. We'll get you <laughs> pregnant. It'll be really mm -hmm, easy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yes, she had already sort of assumed that there was nothing wrong with okay, me. Okay, okay. So was there ever any diagnosis of any female issues or at all? Yes, as we went through the process, mm -hmm. um, turned out I have a bicornerate uterus, so I have a distinct double uterus mm. with a wall down the middle. Wow, so that, okay. That ended up causing problems. Yes. yes, okay, and so that explains a lot. Wow, okay. And so how many cycles did you guys do of IVF before you became pregnant with your uh, rainbow baby did it was a long journey we did four cycles mm -hmm. before they just became stumped and they couldn't work out what was going wrong and why this young thin fertile person mm -hmm. in her 20s was not pregnant yet and then there were other operations hysteroscopies where they actually did some more invasive things to find out 
why yeah yeah the eggs weren't taking okay and um, then that's where they realized um that the eggs were not actually being put back in my uterus and that's why we hadn't fallen pregnant okay and so when you say that the eggs hadn't been going into the uterus that's when they found out that you had a bicornate uterus then at that point or somewhere around that time frame um, they already knew okay. from the beginning but they for some reason hadn't thought that it would change their process oh okay i see i see it makes sense man so it was the fifth cycle where you guys got your bfp and had there ever been a time before that big fat positive that you had ever been pregnant at all in your entire life no so. no and that fifth cycle we only got pregnant because they put the eggs back into my uterus under surgery so it was another invasive process yeah so usually when you go through the ivf cycle they fertilize the eggs we're doing an ICSI cycle so they use a syringe or whatever, probably not technical terms, and they put the sperm into the egg and then fertilize the egg and then put the egg back into me. And usually they do that just with an egg transfer process, right. which is meant to be quick and painless, a bit like a pap smear. Mm -hmm. They just um, put it back in. But when they realized that it hadn't been going in the right place for four cycles, okay. so much emotion there, yeah. did that invasive surgery where they look at, all the pathways inside me and then okay. they had to sedate me because it was too painful to get the eggs in just naturally the way they normally do in the transfer. I've heard of uh, the ICSI cycles, but because your case was so much more difficult with having the bicornate uterus, it makes sense why it would have been a little bit more invasive than the average cycle. Wow, wow, wow. So were you getting any help therapy-wise? Were you getting, besides your spiritual practices and your Ayurvedic uh, practices, what you were learning in school, were you getting help mentally to help deal with all of that? No, not really. That's yeah. a big reason why I do what I do now mm -hmm. because... As you probably know, most people don't want to talk about it. Yeah. We weren't offered counselling through the IVF clinic. And right. I had attempted to find counsellors, but they weren't people who actually got it or mm. people I gelled with. And yeah. that's a huge part of counselling, that you have that rapport and you feel like you can talk to the person. Absolutely. That's a big part of the therapy. Yeah. So no, I just have my husband really and we're quite isolated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You don't have a lot of family in the city where you guys were living at the time? No, no, okay. they were in a different state and okay. so were most of my friends um, or back in the city where we'd moved from. So it was literally mm -hmm. just the two of us and my husband's been a rock throughout the whole process. He's mm -hmm. always been, you know, so involved and, you know, so understanding which... I also hear is quite rare. Lots of men really mm -hmm. struggle to connect with their female partners when they're going through this process. I think it's just hard for men to connect with their feminine emotions anyway, you know. And when you go through something like this, it's like they, they feel like they have to be so strong. And it's hard for everybody. It's just a really unfair situation and place to be in, you already know. So how did you feel then? What Did you even believe what, what the specialists were telling you when they called you and told you that your numbers were good and... It's looking like it might be a viable pregnancy. We, we definitely believed in all the cycles leading up to that last one until we found out that mm -hmm. the eggs hadn't been going in the right spot. And then we were just mm -hmm. so yeah. angry and so devastated that we'd been on this huge journey and 
they've literally just been not doing a good job. <laughs> Here in the U.S., I, I don't know if the process is different, but they call you. Go in the morning, you get your blood test done, and they call you later on that day with your test results. Is it very similar in that way there in Australia with you guys as well? Um, it was throughout the whole process, but the way we found out we were pregnant was quite different actually oh do tell do tell how did that happen <laughs> so we'd crammed in the last cycle um just before christmas mm -hmm. and it turned out that i was going to be able to find out if i was pregnant on christmas day and the clinic was closed of course because it was christmas day and the nurses felt like friends by this stage mm -hmm. they were so beautiful and one of them had said oh I'm going to be on holidays up on the Gold Coast and mm -hmm. you know the clinic will be closed you can find out if you're pregnant on Christmas Day why don't you just go and buy yourself like a home pregnancy test okay and do your own test and then you have to ring me I'll be on holidays but here's my personal number ring me and tell me the results on Christmas Day wow wow <laughs> And so that was that was another emotional roller coaster. It was either going to be the best Christmas ever or oh, the worst yes. Christmas ever. <laughs> so what did you guys end up deciding so, to do? Did you did you go ahead and test during the time of Christmas, or did you wait a little bit afterwards? Uh, so I bought the test, and yes, we we wanted to know. It's kind of like that. We do want to know, but we don't want to mm -hmm. know if it's going to be bad news. We were kind of used to getting bad news by this point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I waited around <laughs> until lunchtime. Like, I just kept putting it off. And mm -hmm. my husband's like, have you done mm -hmm. the test yet? And I'm like, no. We made sure that we didn't have any friends mm -hmm. or family around us. Like, mm -hmm. we were just by ourselves in case it all went pear-shaped. <laughs> yeah, no Christmas yeah. plans. Except this oh. test. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As I think it was about lunchtime or one o'clock in the afternoon by the time I summoned up the courage to take the test and couldn't actually believe it. Like it was so surreal when it came up positive. Like <laughs> I, was, yeah. I was so emotional. I was just clinging onto this test, like couldn't even believe it. I think my husband had to repeat that we were pregnant like three times before it even mildly sunk in. Oh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a special day. I think from the moment it actually mm -hmm. sunk in that we were pregnant, uh, I just went with it. Like, I'd never been pregnant before, so it's not as right. though I had had, like, a miscarriage or a loss. Like, obviously, the cycles are losses, you know, one after the other when you lose the eggs, but this seemed like the most real mm -hmm. time because the eggs had been put in the right spot and I was actually pregnant, and right. that was the first time I'd had a positive pregnancy result. So we, we just jumped into just being so grateful and thankful and I guess mm. maybe I was a little bit too optimistic in some ways because I thought we've been through all of this up to this point. Surely this is it. This is our baby. Like yeah, yeah. we've been through all of this up until now. Like surely nothing else can go wrong. So we were just optimistic and positive from the get-go. And yes, we had to go and get the official blood test and everything, but we already knew. And mm -hmm. yeah, like we even told people that day, like we had waited so long. We didn't want to wait for the obligatory, mm -hmm. you know, 12 weeks or however long people normally wait until they announce. We'd already told our close family. in the moment, right? Yeah. We didn't want to waste a minute of it. Mm-hmm. What year was this? I meant to ask you this a minute ago. What year was this? 
when you got your that big was fat pocket too? 2009. Okay. Okay. 2009. Guys, we're going through all that hell. And I had just met my husband then. <laughs> I'm just thinking about my own, my own personal life. And so was your pregnancy progressing uh, okay at this point into your second trimester and such? Yeah. So from that point, everything just was going perfectly. Had um, our first scans and our second scans at 20 weeks and everything was mm -hmm. going perfectly. We had left our small country town and moved back to my hometown to be with family, being optimistic okay. that we'd have grandparents around to raise our child and sure not be so isolated sure, anymore sure. and so we had left the city where we had done all the fertility treatments and everything so wasn't still under I guess under the support of my specialist so we just moved back to my hometown and maybe they didn't monitor me as much as they should have like I, I told them that you know I had a bicornar uterus and mm. you know just wanted to check that everything was going to be okay because we had told we had been told when we started the IVF process that I may not go full term because the baby may run out of space in my uterus, but right, everything right. seemed that to be tracking with the fine. Diagnosis of the bicornet, yeah. Yeah, but no, everything was tracking fine. And so at Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You get to 23 weeks when you lost your son. Um, yeah, so we're in the 23rd week, and I started getting pain in my back. This was the first time that I'd had any mm. concern. Didn't realize, obviously, what it was initially. Just thought that maybe my back was getting sore because I was getting heavier and bigger. And I'm quite okay. a small person. So I thought maybe I was just having yeah. pains in my back. So I had tried to book in a massage and just thought it was that kind mm -hmm. of problem. And then a couple of days later, the pain hadn't subsided. And then I noticed a spot of blood and we went to get mm -hmm. it checked out. Did it go by pretty fast? When I had premature labor like you did, everything, it, it was just going by so fast and so slow at the same time. So when you get there and they bring you back and they start doing the ultrasounds and checking to see if your waters had broke, at what point did you guys find out while you were in the hospital that you guys had lost him? How did that transpire? Yeah, so everything happens super quickly. Like we were babysitting our godson at the time. So we, my husband dropped me at the hospital and dropped him back to his family so that he could be with me. And I just went into the hospital. Next thing I know, I'm being checked out. And they're saying things like, you're four centimeters dilated. Mm. Wow. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And he's coming. Mm. And then my husband arrived and, yeah, our, our son arrived 30 minutes later. They tried mm. to stop him from coming, but they couldn't. So I literally mm -hmm. went into labor, was already in labor for the last couple of days, but hadn't realized. 
Right. Because, you know, you were at the point where your body's already doing the Braxton Hicks thing and it was practicing. So had you had any like Braxton Hicks leading up to that, to your 23rd week where you just thought maybe it was that and not anything, any kind of complications? Well, I assume that's what the intense pain in my spine had been. And I later found out that if it's an early labor that you feel mm -hmm. the contractions in your back, not where you would normally feel them. So gotcha. that made sense okay. after the fact, but I'd never been pregnant before. So at the time, so you wouldn't it have didn't known, make sense right? that I was in labor. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So when, when he was born, what is the protocol for early births in Australia? I, I just want to compare it to the U.S. and see if it's very similar or not. What is the protocol normally for a baby born in 23 weeks? In my understanding, generally, they would try and, you know, get a humidity crib and try and set the baby up and try and save the baby. In our instance, mm -hmm. things didn't go like that at all. It was a small town and the hospital was supposedly on the phone to a bigger hospital trying to get things that they needed, like humidity cribs. But because literally he was born half an hour after I arrived at the hospital, they were not equipped. And so when he actually arrived and was birthed, they actually just handed him to us and said, you know, here he is. And my husband said, oh, where's the humidity crib? They said, we don't have anything. Just hold him. Wow. I just want to take a minute just to give honor to your son who's no longer with us and who didn't survive. Uh, but your baby boy, River, is his name. And I'm just so sorry for your loss. And I, I know our listener friends today, there's a lot of them who have suffered such losses. And so I know they will empathize with the, the level of pain that that causes. And it never quite truly goes away, I don't believe, from my experience and um, just from connecting with others who have been through such things. So just take a moment for Baby River and, and the life, him and his spirit. I know it's still with you guys. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Mm -mm -mm. And as you can see, you know, this was 11 yeah. years ago and right. yeah, the emotions yeah. are still there. <laughs> yeah, still very. And I can feel it. You're all the way to Australia, but I can I can tell. I can tell to the level of understanding that I have. Um, of course, my I've never lost like that, so I don't understand it the way you do. But I understand that it's it's something that never quite goes away. And it's 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 a tough one. Life is hard and it's so unfair. It's so unfair. We can do all the practices and we can do all the healing and, you know, love is love and it's unconditional. When it's unconditional, it remains, kind of just sits with us. So, wow. Wow. So sorry for you guys' loss. Wow. And I know you said that you used your practices and your studies to help you cope in the beginning before giving birth to Baby River. After you had given birth to him and you, did you guys have a, a service for him of any sort? I know a lot of people like to do things like that to honor the baby. Yes, yes, he was legally a, a baby. <laughs> so there were, we needed to have a funeral um, because mm -hmm. he was, I think it's over 20 weeks or something in right. Australia. Yeah. yeah. Um, could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure if they're over 20 weeks, they're considered... Um, a baby and you need to have a ceremony and honor their death mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. yes we, uh, we just had a very simple ceremony we had him cremated and my husband and I just went and put his ashes in um, a special space love that nearby mm. so befitting mm. I love that I love that and, and and did you find it hard to go back to your studies while you were grieving 
um, when you felt strong enough to do so. Because it's almost like this feeling. I know there's times when, when things that I've been through and, and I'm sure our friends listening today have been through similar times where it's like, what am I even doing all this for when such a horrific thing has happened to me? Did you have moments like that? Yeah, there was obviously a long time, mm-hmm. or it feels like a long time. Mm-hmm. It probably wasn't like years and years for me. It was quite quick, but um, there was definitely a time where I just didn't know how to keep going. Like it, all your dreams had just come to an end and the day after we lost River, the doctors were saying, so next time when you go through IVF, we'll do this and we'll do this to prolong the pregnancy. And by that stage, Brett and I were just emotionally and financially done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We just had yeah. to, I think we just had to realize that we couldn't keep going with the IVF process. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. You said earlier in the episode that you always used writing as one of your greatest tools to get through things and to deal with your emotions and to navigate your emotional and mental state and your spiritual state as well. So at what point after your loss, you guys' loss, did you begin to write again? Because I found when I was going through IVF, I didn't write as much. I, I, I saved it for afterwards, you know, when there's some healing had taken place. And so I didn't, it was hard for me to write when I was in it, if that makes sense, you know. Did you have a similar experience or did you go to writing right away? Yeah, so I think I'd been writing throughout. I'd been writing, you know, before the process began of IVF and Mm -hmm. at different times during. There were definitely times, like you just said, where you're not in a place to Mm -hmm. write. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, there was writing that happened afterwards as well. So it was all different stages where I used writing, I also threw myself into a new study, a counseling degree, and I found that really cathartic to learn about Mm. myself. And I had always wanted to use that as a platform to work with others and support others with their grief through my lived experiences. But it, it took like another eight years or so before I was ready to work in a space with other people and their grief and loss. Mm -hmm. I had to, you know, Mm -hmm. walk through my grief first and be in a space where I was in a good place to be able to help. Yeah. Can't pour from an empty cup, right? We always have to, I feel like healers always have to be cognizant of that and, and, and remembering to take care of themselves first because we so quickly jump to help others before we help ourselves sometimes and and using it as a way to cope with our own losses. I had always planned to do that because that's how I heal and that's how I process my pain and my loss. I've always written and mm-hmm. you know I've done that in previous experiences in life when I've been through difficult things. I've always written about it and they've always turned into books but mm-hmm. Yeah, it took a long time for this one to get out to the public just because Mm -hmm. it is such, you know, such a personal journey and I knew I had to be in a space where I was ready to talk about it and share our story and, Mm -hmm. yeah, 
you have to do the grief, don't you, to get to that place where you're willing to share it with other people. So I, I imagine when you were writing the inner workings of the contents of the book, I imagine it being very difficult writing it because you have to relive it and you have to relive it again through the editing process. And so would you say that you found more healing in completing the book and publishing it? Yeah, it was such a beautiful healing journey for me. Like many, many tears mm -hmm. fell on the pages as I wrote. And, you know, I still can't even read back mm -hmm. the book or certain passages without, you know, just being in that space again and getting teary mm -hmm. people who have bought and read my book already have told me that it's quite an emotional read as well and they read it in doses with tissues yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah it's definitely been a healing journey for me seeing it to fruition like mm -hmm. not just writing it because mm -hmm. it started off just as a cathartic practice for me to do my healing but now to be able to publish it and put it out there and share it with other people and then be able to hear their stories and see how it helps them mm -hmm. with their healing. I think it's almost come full circle. I unfortunately have not received the book yet. I ordered it when Norella and I first started talking about her coming onto the pod about a month or so ago. And so Unfortunately, the U.S. mail system sucks right now with this COVID stuff. It has been for the last two years the worst. So I would have I would have received it by now. I've gotten books from other people in the community and such, and I would have gotten it by now. It's just like so crazy. Of course, when I need it for an interview, I can't get it, right? So unfortunately, I have not been able to read it yet, and I can't wait to get my hands on it and read it and then also come back and be able to give you guys uh, my full circle thoughts about the book and how I think it could help you as well. But if there's nothing else that you would like others mothers and fathers and spouses to know about grief and loss at this magnitude Norel, what what would you say to them to help them along their process to healing I think grief is unique for all of us and we all do it in different ways so sure. if it helps you to write about it to talk about it to go out and run mm -hmm. or paint or punch a punching bag, whatever you need to do yeah. is just what you need to do. Mm -hmm. That's how you can honor that grief and the love you had for the person that you've lost. And I mm -hmm. think that's really important. And, you know, if there's no one who's willing to talk about it with you, because often in our society there isn't, you know, people like you, Monique, are doing an amazing job of, you know, opening up this conversation and this topic for discussion. And that's what I try to do with my counselling practice and sure. my book as well, so that we can have people that are willing to listen and talk about it. Because I think that's really cathartic for lots of us. Yes, I agree. To be able to talk about our feelings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We have to normalise talking about the emotions and not just talking about what the heck our spouses did yesterday that ticked us off and stuff, you know, just going beyond the surface level of things. And so that when there is, cause I feel like a lot of times when we have these conversations, you don't actually find out that other people have dealt with it or are dealing with it until you become open and, and allow the universe to use you to be open about your story or to just have a conversation privately with a friend or some other loved one. Or I think that's great. And I, I agree wholeheartedly that, you know, seek community, seek help 
from specialists like Norel and counseling and whatever you need to do. I did Reiki a lot when I was in the midst of things. So I, I get it and I know that it works. If you want it to work, it'll work for you, you know, and we just have to find what works for us. So can we find you online? Where can we get your book as well? Speaking of the postage, the system at the moment with getting books overseas, it has taken six months to get my books overseas, but they are finally mm -hmm. there. So you can now get my book um, overseas on Book Depository or Amazon.com. Um, and if you're in Australia, find the book at my website, NorelHudson.com or on some platforms in Australia. And even some local bookstores around me in Brisbane at the moment are also stocking my book. So if it's not in Wonderful. your local bookstore and you want to support your independent bookstore, then ask for it and they'll be able to order it. All of her information will be in the show details so you guys know where to find her book as well as where to find her online and on Instagram. Any guests that we have, all the information is in the show details, you guys. And you guys already know where to find me at Infertility and Me Podcast on IG only. I am not on Facebook and or TikTok. So if there's anybody else with an account that says Infertility and Me Podcast, it is not me. I am only on IG <laughs> and through my website, MoniqueFarouk.com. Mm -hmm. So again, Narelle, I appreciate you so much, dear, for telling us about your story of loss and what has brought you to a place of healing now, even though... It still sticks with us um, in many, many ways. And yeah, so I just appreciate you because you got up so very early to talk to us today. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And I think, yeah, I think it's really important that we talk about it. Even all these years later, there's still grief there and there's still tears. But for sure. I think it's also important to normalize that. And thank you, friends, for tuning in to another episode of Infertility and Me Podcast. Thank you. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.